0: Well, good morning. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, if you don't have a Bible, you should have one of these blue pew Bibles somewhere in front of you. And I encourage you to follow along with us. Mark 6 will be on page 841. And just before we get going, I just want to celebrate what has been an exciting weekend for one of our staff members. Um, On Friday night, our creative director, A.J. Graves, worked up the courage and got engaged this past weekend. We celebrate that. Uh, his now fiance, Melissa, was one of the women singing up here. So if you felt like you couldn't see as well, like something was just shining in your eye, uh, there was some extra hardware up here. And so uh, we just want to celebrate that with them and look forward to seeing what God's going to do through their marriage. And, and then also, I uh, just want to throw it out there, that they met at a grace group. All right, so just saying, just saying, (laughs) might work out. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we skipped spring this past week, and we uh, went right from winter to summer, but we finally got some warm weather in us, and and something that happens in, I think, northern New Jersey, probably the northeast, whenever it starts to get warm, is that um, everyone seems to start thinking about hiking once again. Right now, you actual hikers, you didn't let winter stop you. But if you're a fake hiking fan like me, all right, and I claim to love it far more than I actually do it, you get a rush of kind of warm air. You're like, man, we just gotta get outside. Let's go. Let's go hike a mountain. All right, and and then inevitably we all head to the one place we only know, it's Ramapo Reservation. (laughs) And about 10,000 other people had the same idea, all right? Um, But whether you like it or not, whether you consider yourself a hiker or not, uh, I think it's safe to say that we've all at least been hiking. And when you hike up a mountain, regardless of size, the, the goal, the primary goal is to get to the top, Right, The the top of the mountain is where the payoff is. It's where you get the best view, you get this feeling of contentment that you just climbed a mountain, you get some extended rest, you bring some food, you can eat, you just kind of soak in God's creation. the mountain I've climbed most in my life is Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. Um, also, I think one of the highest or most climbed mountains in North America. And the reason is it has this kind of rocky mountaintop with just an amazing view that you can even see the skyline of Boston kind of way out in distance in a, on a clear day. And my family's been going up there every summer since I was a kid. And, and you, you hike up the mountain and you just have this extended amount of time and space just to behold the view and so so we hike primarily to get to the top of the mountain but the travel up the mountain has its benefits as well Right? I mean, for one, it's just good exercise. You have this joy that you're being active. Uh, there might be little breaks in the tree line that you might get a little glimpse of a view that is to come when you get to the top. You, you, you get to just take in any animals and nature that you see, right? I was always the kid who was always shocked when he didn't see a bear. Like, I was committed to just staring off the path and going, like, today's going to be the day, and was always re-surprised when it didn't happen. But, but you hike to get to the top of the mountain, but there's a lot along the way to notice. That's what came to mind as I read and studied this passage we're going to be in this morning because as we will see, there is a big top of the mountain kind of climactic point that's going to apply to everybody in the room. But along the way, there are several things we just need to make note of. If you're new, gathering with us this morning, we have been trekking through the gospel of Mark. Um, In the New Testament, there's four books that we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Essentially, there are four ancient biographies of the life and work of Jesus Christ, and so back in January, we began going through verse by verse through this gospel of Mark, and then up to this point this morning, we're halfway through chapter six, and we come upon one of, if not the most popular stories in the whole Bible. It's certainly among the most well-known, Jesus feeding the 5,000. For those who grew up church or have church background, this probably ranked in top three of Bible stories as a kid. right? I'd say even the majority of people who even are outside the church or never really was involved in church has some knowledge of this story. And so up front, my fear is that if we're not careful, we never leave the children's story mindset when we read it. This is not just a feel-good miracle to get kids impressed with Jesus. This is vitally important for everyone to see and understand. Listen, it is so important that it is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Think about that. Of all the miracles in the Bible, dozens and dozens and dozens, even within the Gospel themselves, one is recorded and repeated across all four. And it's this one that we're going to read this morning. So there is much for us to see if we're willing Receive it, and so I have a very ambitious outline. I haven't preached in two weeks, I'm ready to go and uh, stay with me. But we're gonna go verses 30 to 44, and we're starting at the base of this mountain, and we're gonna work our way up to the main point to, to the best view. But we got some stops to note along the way, so let's start with just verses 30 to 32. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves." The apostles are returning, and they're returning from what uh, we know is their kind of first evangelistic mission, right? Remember, Jesus has been walking with them, teaching them, discipling them for some time now. And then earlier in chapter 6, he takes these 12 men, and he starts to send them out two by two. He gave them authority to heal disease. He gave them authority to drive out evil, and he charged them to go village to village and preach the good news. And here's the thing. It went well. They were driving out demons, they were healing many, they're probably surprised at themselves at what they're able to do on their own, and then in between them being sent out and now coming back, Mark tucked in this little story of John the Baptist getting beheaded, a passage that Pastor Jeff drew the short straw on and had to preach a couple weeks back, which by the way, um, not only did I think he did a fantastic job in just letting the text speak for itself, but he did not shy away from saying some pretty hard things. And I appreciate that, and we should all appreciate that, but, but that's the context of their return. They've, they've experienced success while they were gone, but then word starts to circulate that John the Baptist just got beheaded for doing the very things that they're now doing. So I bet they come back to Jesus, and their heads are spinning, right? They return, and they're probably talking just a mile a minute, like an excited kid who's trying to relate to his parents' a story, just like not even making sense. And Jesus says, come, let's go rest a while. Go to a remote place and rest. You guys have seen a lot. You guys have been through a lot. Let's rest. So they get in a boat, and they head for a remote place by themselves. First point to notice on our spiritual hike this morning work hard and rest well work hard and rest well did you see a pattern that Jesus is establishing for them here he's he's trying to prepare them for ministry because these 12 will one day be entrusted as being the first leaders of the early church and so he's establishing a pattern work hard and rest well Both are required for effective ministry. Both are required to live a sustainable, fruitful life in following Christ. To follow him is to commit to hard work. The concept that becoming a Christian means now you can just kind of kick back and be carefree and life's just going to be easy, that is nowhere evident in your scriptures. You won't find that verse. When God saves you by his grace through faith, he gives you a new heart. And with those new heart comes new desires. And now you join the mission of of seeing the kingdom of God expand. Right? Jesus is a great leader. And you know what's true of great leaders? They don't do everything themselves. They're great because they equip and inspire others to do great work as well. These 12 went out and they worked hard on their mission because you see once christ works in you he then can work through you to impact others so work hard when you go to bed you should be tired we all have the motivation and we have the inspiration we need rooted in the work of christ to just pour ourselves out for the glory of god and the good of others there is no room for a lazy christian those two words should never be put together. It shouldn't make sense to us. So work hard, but then, but then the other side of that coin is here as well. To, to follow Christ is to commit to rest well. Jesus commanded rest. He didn't say, hey guys, do you want to take a little break? Maybe you should do this. He says, no, come away and rest a while. That's a command. To never intentionally take time to rest is not a sign of strength. It's a sign of immaturity and pride. We rest because we need to, right? God has wired us with the need for physical rest in order to sustain long-term fruitful work, but also, and maybe more importantly, we rest as a reminder to ourselves that we're not God. God doesn't need rest. God does not get tired, but we do. And when we rest, we acknowledge that God's work will continue on without me just fine. Work hard and rest well. Danny Akin's a commentary I've been using for this series, and, and he comments on this verse saying, there's two ways to be derailed in the Christian life. You can either rust out or burn out. Some people rust out because they're lazy. And others burn out because they never take a break. And so we have an opportunity to evaluate ourselves in this. Are are we working hard to live out our purpose? Can we say we are doing hard work for the kingdom of God? And then similarly, are we resting well? And since we are so easily deceived amongst ourselves, we ought to let others speak into this for us too. So, Rochelle and I got away for a weekend two weeks ago um, without kids, which meant we just ate meals very slowly, all right? Because that just doesn't happen anymore. Long, interrupted conversations. and, And in the midst of a weekend, that's one question I asked her. I just had to sit down and say, Babe, how do you think I'm doing in balancing work and family? Am I resting enough? So I don't know how God has wired you. I don't know if your question needs to be, am I resting enough? Or maybe your question needs to be, am I working enough? But either way, it's a hard question to ask. You know why? I can't control her answer. And I can't ask it like, hey, I'm doing pretty good resting, right? Right? No, it's just let it go out there. She knows me best. She's around me mess. She she has the authority to speak into my life here. Am I resting enough? And I can't just avoid it and hope it just doesn't come up. We need to allow others to have authority to speak into us. So I'm just saying, um, maybe it's a conversation you need to have today at lunch with your spouse, with a friend, with a parent. And am I working hard enough? Am I resting well? Let's keep going. Verses 33 to 36. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat, second stop along this hike. Compassion for all. Compassion for all. So, so Jesus and his disciples, they, they get away, but as we know well by now, if you've been here throughout this series, the crowds are not easily shaken. They, they can't get rid of them very well, and so uh, Jesus, just as A-list celebrity status at this point in his ministry, and not only is he doing miracles, but these men who have been around him for a while, now they're doing miracles, and it's probably just near hysteria, and so they get out in a boat, and they try to go to a desolate place, but apparently these people just beat them along the shore. Right? So they come out in the water and they try to get away and people are just walking the shore, walking the shore and they, then Jesus and his disciples come back in the boat and there's just people everywhere. So does Jesus rebuke them? Does he pull a fast one on them and, and try and ditch them? No. We read he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Thousands of people in the middle of nowhere just standing here longing to see and hear from Jesus. Sheep without a shepherd. It's a word picture that displays this truth and this reality of people just wandering aimlessly through life with no point of center to be grounded in just no confidence in life's bigger questions about purpose and, and fulfillment. And they're, they're just lost, and they're, they're completely lost. And you can just picture a sheep just turning to the left and, and turning to the right and, and always moving but never finding. A desert of unbelief. Sure, on the outside, everything may seem fine. They may seem good. They, they have all their ducks in a row. People will look at their life and probably go, I want to kind of be like that. That person has it together. But their souls are longing for something. Haunted by the truth as written on their hearts that there's something more out there, and yet they just can't find it as life is just marching on, and it is a, it is a haunting place to be. French philosopher Luc Ferry probably saying that wrong describes how all people all of us we reach a point where we quote try and conquer the various faces of death as well as of boredom the sense of time slipping by lost sheep they know they should be somewhere so they keep moving but they wander and they look and they don't even know what they're looking for Could that be true of you this morning? I'm searching, but I'm never finding. And I know there's something there, but I don't know what it is. And I can sense time slipping by, and I feel like I should be somewhere, but I'm, I'm not there. What do I do? Lost. These are the people that Jesus comes upon. People who have wandered deep into the desert because there's this feeling that's something they need. So Church, far more meaningful than Jesus just filling their bellies with some bread is the fact that he first filled their souls with the good news. He sees them. You see, Mark said that he sees them. He's not looking over them. He's not trying to get around them. He, he sees them, and his first response is not condemnation. His first response is not to lash out at them. It's compassion. Pastor Legan Duncan said that if you had to choose one word to represent the sum of Jesus' emotional life all throughout the gospel, if you just had to say Jesus' emotion in one word, what would it be? He said compassion. And likewise, if people are going to see us as grace-filled people who look like Jesus, they ought to see us as compassionate How often is it that people see the opposite in me? See the opposite in us. Where we are quick to condemn. Where we are quick to point the finger at all those people out there. And we lash out against a lost world. And we draw these lines in the sand and say, just with cold hearts, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And they're not like me. But on the contrary, if we're going to look like Jesus... Our hearts will break for a world that is full of sheep without a shepherd. And no one should know what that's like more than Christians, because that was us. And it's only by the abundant grace of God that he transformed us, that he's led us, and so we ought to long for that in others. The disciples see him now just teach all day, and they get to a point where it's getting dark, and it's Dusk is settling in, and, and they go, Jesus, it's getting late, brother. Take a look around. We're, we're in the middle of nowhere. You, you need to dismiss them so they can go get food themselves. Honestly, it's a pretty reasonable reaction, if you ask me. If I'm there, I'm probably telling him the same thing. Um, Jesus, you're rolling right now. Love what you're preaching, but it's getting late. These guys need to Eat. But then this story turns on them in a way they wouldn't expect. Let's keep heading up this mountain. Verses 37 through 40. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Third stop along the way, faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. The, The disciples tell Jesus, send them away to eat. Jesus responds with, you feed them. Notice he doesn't say, watch this, fellas, I got this. He says, you give them something to eat. Right? Jesus is a great leader. Management 101. He's equipping them. Of course, he could have just done something by himself, but he chooses to involve his disciples to empower them to play a part in this. Because he's taught them, and he's he's discipled them, and now he's giving them an opportunity to walk in faithful obedience. He says, you give them something to eat. And sarcastically, they go, okay, Jesus, um, how about 200 denarii worth of bread? We'll just go ahead and buy that real quick at the market. 200 denarii is the equivalent of eight months' wages. And they're broke. So they're just letting Jesus know that's impossible. And Jesus, just patient with them, as a good leader is, says, okay, um, what food you got? Go and see. I love that line. Go and see. You play a part in this. It reminded me of a time that um, Rochelle and I, uh, when we were newlyweds, uh, I don't know four or five years ago, um, were invited over for dinner by Andy and Rochelle Steen. And at that time, um, Asher, their little guy, was uh, probably three years old ish. Hazel, I think, was just a baby, and and I don't remember why this stuck with me while we were at dinner. But Andy was telling me about how he was teaching Asher how to clean out the dishwasher. And he said it's hard because it's way faster and easier just to do it myself. But he wants to lead, he wants to teach Asher, so it becomes this painfully slow process with a lot of correction, a lot of taking your time, so it's usually just two minutes to clear the dishwasher is now a 10 to 15 minute process, but it's worth it because the point is not just efficiency, it's raising Asher to learn how to start doing these things on his own. And this came to mind while, because at the time I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm a newlywed. I'm going home, right? And I have fun with bedtime. Um, and now I'm in, a, I'm like in that same place. <laughs> we have a three-year-old who gets to the end of the night and there is just, it is destruction around our house, all right? It's like something blew up. I don't know, toys everywhere and it's getting to be bedtime and it is always easier to take the kid up to bed, come down and take five minutes and just plow through the, the toys, But we want to have Caden help clean up by we. I mean, Rochelle, she's always like, Aaron, we have to have him clean up. I'm like, oh, dang it. All right. Um, And this kid, it's miraculous, right? All the energy and speed in the world. Suddenly, he starts moving like a turtle when he has to clean. Like, we are torturing him. Like, it's a hundred-pound train to get into the bucket. And I'm tortured watching him. I'm thinking, all right, we just got to go. It's bedtime. I'll clean this later. But it's worth the fight. That's what Jesus is doing here. He could have just been like, fellas, I got food here. Don't worry. Watch this. But instead, he takes the time. And he goes, you feed them. What do you have? What do you have to offer? Go and see. The disciples come back. Five loaves and, and two fish. You can almost see their tone to Jesus. Like, see Jesus? Five loaves. Five. Two fish. Thousands of people, let's go. Like we said earlier, send them away. But Jesus <laughs> sees what they have and goes, Great, wonderful, have them sit down in groups. Just what we need. So here's a question What are the disciples going to do at this point? It's a kind of a make or break moment for them. Are they going to walk in faithful obedience? Despite everything in their own common senses, and or are they going to join him in now settling these people down? Not only not sending them away, but having them sit down, or would they say, "No, Jesus, we're not going to do this. It makes no sense. You're going to start a riot of people fighting over this little food. It's not enough." But to their credit, they obey in faith. They start sitting, these thousands of people, in hundreds and in fifties, and despite nothing making sense, despite the how and the what being totally unknown in the future, they walk in faithful obedience because of the who. There's a word for us here. Walking in faithful obedience, not because we know what's going to happen, but because we trust in the one who's telling us to walk. Jesus is telling us to do this. All right, let's go. And that sets things up for the final verses, verses 41 to 44. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men fourth we've arrived to the top of the mountain and we see the unparalleled power of Jesus Christ he takes what has been given to him from the disciples he takes what little they had and he blesses the giving and then don't miss this either he gives it to the disciples to then give to the people Jesus takes what little they have, he blesses it, and then he has them be the ones to carry it out because he wants them to see this. He wants them to see provision, right? He wants them to be witnesses to his unparalleled power. Like, I can't imagine what this would have been like for them. Like, the apostles just exchanging looks to one another, like, there's more, and then there's more, and I'm still giving it out, and I'm looking at my buddy, and he's still giving it out. Like, that would have been insane. food is multiplying. It's like bottomless chips at Ch- Chili's, but better. <laughs> and everyone eats. In the kingdom of God, man, everyone can eat. Everyone being 5,000 men. And so when you consider the fact that there are women and children there, you're easily talking 15,000, 20,000 or more. And they gather what is left over as if Jesus' final note on an unbelievable miracle is the disciples gathering and realizing there's 12 baskets left. One for each of them. What a moment to behold Listen, there are many applications we can get from this text, and we'll talk about a few in a minute. But perhaps the most important application is to simply sit back and behold your God. When you get to the top of a mountain after a difficult hike, you don't just go up, take a quick glimpse at the view, and go, all right, let's go, time to go back down. No, you go, and you get up there, and you just behold the view. You don't even have to say anything. When you are overpowered by by unbelievable creation, you you just behold the majesty and the power, and it stirs something inside you that you can't even put into words, even if you tried. That's the response of a believer who has seen the work of God put on display. Behold our God, seated on the throne. There is none like him. I've said this before, but I'm just going to keep saying it. Beholding the unparalleled power of God will do more to change you, more to shape you, more to grow you in your faith than any self-help list will. Behold our God. Eyes fixed on him. Soak it in. All right, here's how we're going to end this morning. Once you get to the top of a mountain and you behold a view, eventually it's time to hit the trail and head back down. And as you all know, the trip down a mountain is very different than the trek up. Because now you're reflecting on what you saw. On the way up, you're just anticipating. Now you're reflecting. You're a little bit more carefree. You're a little bit more thoughtful of that experience that has washed over you. Because the hike down a mountain can be kind of a blur, right? Well, in that vein, I want to give you three reflections, three applications from the feeding of the 5,000. Perhaps you've heard this story dozens of times. What is fresh application that can flow from an ancient story? Three things. I'll be quick. Number one, believe in miracles. This is simple, but don't water down what happened. In our culture, in our intellectual age today, it can be surprisingly easy to run from the physical, miraculous events in the Bible that happen and just think, as if you need to protect it. Okay, that didn't really happen. It's a cute story, yes, makes my kid feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but it's really just to convey the point that Jesus is powerful. It's a good story. We'll remember it. But, but come on, it's 2018 now, right? We're not actually believing this, that he fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. Brothers and sisters, you know why we can believe this is true? Because we believe God created the world out of nothing. He spoke it into being. And if he can do that, there's nothing he can't do. Like, I wonder what our prayer life would look like if we truly believed in miracles, You know why else I think we can believe this? Because we believe that God can change hearts. And we believe God can bring people from death to life through faith. And we believe he can transform us from the inside out. So what's so hard to believe about multiplying some bread? So first takeaway. This happened. Never feel ashamed for believing that God can do all things. Don't apologize for it. Don't try and protect it. Our God is in the business of doing the unthinkable. Believe in miracles. Number two, faithfully give what you can. For those who give in faith, God will use whatever it is, and He will use it in mighty ways to glorify Himself and impact the world. Jesus asked His disciples, What do you got? What can you give? Five loaves and two fish. It was a meager offering. They couldn't even feed themselves with it, and yet God used it to fill the stomachs of thousands. So as we think about giving, we talk about it around here in really three buckets. Time, talent, treasure. What can you give? Time, talent, treasure. What, what time can you give that God can use to make an impact? In some ways, this is our most valuable thing we have. Even those of us who have such small margin of time, because let's agree, think about where we live. Think about commuting time. Think about busyness and activities. Life is busy and is nonstop. But we can, if we want to, find time to bless others, to meet with others, to invest in others and trust that God will use it to make an impact. Talent, what are you good at? What gifts has God given you? For we believe that all believers have at least one spiritual gift, and and, and many probably even more than that. So discern what that is. Ask others to speak into your life. What do they see you doing good at? And then find ways to deploy that talent to bless others. And then third, treasure. And this is where everyone starts to get nervous. Right? But we how often we can kind of look at our money against uh think about our area, think about how much money that people have or we think they have and how ha- and how much how much it costs to live around here. And we look at what how little we could give, and we go, what's the point? Look at all the need out there. What, what, what's this gonna do? What can God do with this? Or or maybe it's that if we can speak honestly, it's not a lack of means that you have, but just a lack of desire. All right, so I'm a pastor, and I'm about to talk about money, so don't get nervous, all right? I promise this won't get weird, all right? But let me just confess, I have always struggled with generosity. I have convinced myself endless amounts of reasons growing up and then even getting into adulthood why I couldn't give more. I'm a poor high school kid. And I'm a poor college kid, and I just don't have it. What's this going to do anyway? And then when I started working, I started working in finance out of college, and and I started making money, but see, I shifted the goalpost. Well, yeah, I have money now, but look at this area and how much I'm going to need to provide. So I just got to start saving. And so I always found ways that I didn't have to be generous. And do you know what, or I should say who, God used to shatter that idol in my heart? A faithful wife. Rochelle is far more generous than I am, far more selfless, and she has been a means of grace that God has used to shape me here. Let me tell you one story that I vividly remember. We were just married, Summer of 2012, I was not in ministry yet, and we were uh, attending Grace, involved at Grace, and, and I had, we had a, like a five-weekend stretch where we were away every weekend for weddings or vacation, and so gone for like over a month, and, and then finally Sunday morning, we're coming back to church. And what, what we did, we lived in Hawthorne, we drive to church, and Rochelle says before push pay and online giving was a thing, which is amazing. But she would write the check in the car as we're going, and we must have been in a red light or something, and I look next to me and I see the number she's writing. I'm just like, What are you doing? <laughs> and she just looks at me like, Aaron, we haven't been in church in five weeks. I'm making up for the Sunday we missed. And, and it literally starts in argument. And as I'm saying it, have you ever been in this case? You're like, crap, I'm dead in the water, right? Like, like, it was easy to convince myself of all these things, but now married, joint bank account, I don't call all the shots anymore, and I realize, man, I'm dead in the water. And I try to tell her, no, 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 we just give the Sundays we go. <laughs> Pastor's kid saying this, right? And like, we, we have our agreed amount. And she looks at me, I can almost see the look, like, are you serious? Like, what kind of mentality is that? Like, church is like a pay-for-play thing now all of a sudden? And I just knew dead in the water, and I knew I was wrong, and it was painful. But God used that in time to shatter a long-standing idol and a sin of a lack of generosity in me, and it was crushing, and it was beautiful. Where now I can say, praise God, Rochelle and I are on the same page. Which is not to mean I influenced her, but she has influenced me. And I have finally caught up. And it's only in recent years that I can say that giving truly is a joy. It's freeing to live open-handed. You're living in shackles trying to hold on to it all. And the mentality can shift of how much can we give here versus how much do we have to give? And so listen, I get it, I'm the pastor. I, li- I know that some of you are like, "That is the hardest like sell I've ever seen. This isn't prosperity gospel. I'm not saying the only way you're going to see blessing is if you give enough money. This isn't emotionalism. I'm just standing on the word of God and experience that God is allowing us to contribute so that it can grow the kingdom and grow us through our giving. The command to give generously is not a burden. It's a blessing and it's all over the scripture and I'm telling you it is freeing and it breaks strongholds when we are generous not only with our treasure but also with our time and our talent. So church, what can you give? There's no minimum amount. God will take whatever you can offer and he will do work with it to further his kingdom and to grow you. Go and see. Go and see. Third and final takeaway. Jesus is the bread. The last thing I want us all to hear this morning is that this miracle is ultimately about Jesus himself. So we've seen how this has applications to our lives and what we can do, but the primary application, the primary thing to know is that this miracle shows us Jesus himself. He is the bread. The bread provided turned a desolate place into a setting for a feast. It was transformed from a realm of desertion to a place of abundance. This is what Jesus has come to do in your life. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he's not talking about physical hunger. He is the shepherd. He is the bread. The best thing Jesus can give you is not riches, and it's not health, and it's not a promotion, and it's not a spouse. We praise God for those things, but that is not what primarily Jesus has come to give you. The best thing he gives you is himself. He came not to condemn, but to save, and he did so by going to the cross to lay his life down for the sins of those who believe in him. And so for those who surrender their life and put their faith in Jesus Christ, he turns a desolate place into a feast. He turns a cold, dead heart into a heart of flesh, and he calls us to himself. For it is only in him that we will be fully satisfied. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, even as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, that we would understand what it is to behold our King. And Father, the call goes out to all today, that today can be the day we stop searching. Today is the day that we can accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Father. And so I pray for anybody in this room who has not taken that step yet, that today would be the day of salvation. And there's no works we need to do to muster that up. There's nothing we need to impress. But we just need to surrender our hearts to you and say, Father, I confess of my sin and rebellion, and I put my full faith and trust in you and the work that you have done on the cross. Father, we thank you that you are the bread. And we thank you that today is the day that we can be satisfied in you. And I pray with everything that is in me that it might be the first time for someone here this morning. And Father, I pray that you would save us, that you would grow us, and that you would equip us to live for your glory alone. And in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.